You can open your Bibles to Ephesians. Yeah, you can clap. We love books of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. And I want to welcome you. And, and I'm excited to look at God's Word with you as we begin this new series this morning through really this breathtaking, this informative, this transformative book of the Bible. And it's a New Testament epistle. And this morning, we're going to cover verses 1 through 2. And what we'll do is we're going to allow these verses, verses 1 through 2, to really guide us through a bit of an introduction um, of the book. And then we're going to use those verses, verses 1 through 2, as sort of a springboard um, for the background information that we need for this book. So this morning will be a little bit information heavy, okay? And, uh, and it'll set us up to be really um, applicational as we move along um, in the coming weeks. Um, but really, that's what I've titled this morning is an introduction to the book of Ephesians, an introduction to the book of Ephesians, and we'll work our way to the theme of the book, which is really blessed in Christ, blessed in Christ. So we'll work our way through verses one through two to the theme blessed in Christ. And this is definitely a introduction, ground level, foundational piece for us. And so we're going to see this morning as we make our way to the theme that this message that we find in this book is the message that you and I need. Uh, this is the message that we need. And this is the message that will make your Christian life blossom. Uh, this is the message that will bring warmth to your Christian life like a, a flower under the heat of the sun. It's a message that if you'll track with us through this, you'll track with Paul through this, you'll track with God through this, uh, this book will make you come alive either for the first time or for a way in which it is necessary for you in your Christian life that you haven't experienced, I think, in a long time. And so all the truths that are wrapped in this book are designed to help us understand who we are, what has been done, what we've been given, and the great privilege we, we have to live in light of that. I mean, this really shows us this new creation that we have become and the new created way that we live. It, it'll make you come alive as we look at these verses. And so let's get into it as we begin reading. And again, I'll explain more of that relevance later on. We're going to work our way to how this will apply uh, very, very specifically to our lives. But let's begin by reading verses 1 through 2 of Ephesians chapter, of Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll get into the background of this. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're seeing in these verses is really the salutation. Uh, it's a common in the beginning of the, 
of the letters, it's an expression of greeting. This is a salutation, an expression of greeting. It's a welcoming word. And it's conventionally before the body of a letter. And so this is typical. But through these verses, we're going to see really three things that we'll talk about this morning to give you this background. Number one, the author. And it's in verse 1a. And secondly, we'll see the audience in verse 1b. And then we'll see the aim in verse 2, which is really leading us to the heart of the matter. And I want you to understand all of this. This is important as you begin out on this journey through this book. We could say that we see first the pastor introduced. We, we could say second that we see the people identified. And we could say third that we see really the purpose initiated or the purpose that's intended and so it's the author, the audience, and the aim. So let's start with the pastor being introduced, and that's the author in verse 1a, the Apostle Paul. We read in verse 1a, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so here Paul introduces himself, and it's a, a familiar person. You, you know him, and I know him. We've read about him before, we've been introduced to him before, but it's a familiar writer, and for most of you, this is a familiar epistle, really. And of course, this is what you would expect from the pastor. And I'll explain to you what, we, what I mean by that as we go on, but he identifies himself again in this book as the writer. There's no doubt, if, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 1, look at it, just a little bit over to your right. For this reason, I who... Paul. And this is Paul writing to this church. And the scriptures tell us of Paul. And Paul is his Greek name, while his Jewish name being Saul. And we read in Acts 22, it really gives us about a pretty good comprehensive summary of Paul and his life and his missionary journey in a sense. So just turn over to Acts chapter 22, just a, a few books to your left. I, I want us to read this because it'll really define for us who this character is. Scripture interprets Scripture, and so we can get the most accurate view by reading Scripture ourselves. Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 21, it says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So who's Paul? This is him. He was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all you are this day, I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. This is Paul speaking about himself. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now these who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told. Sorry, there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. 
And the one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear the voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You can turn back to Ephesians. Um, but this gives us a, a pretty comprehensive summary of who this man is. He's a Jew, but he's also born a Roman citizen, he's, he, which makes him this perfect missionary to both Jew and Gentile, right? He, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He, he most certainly is named after Israel's first king, which it was Saul. He was trained by the rabbi Gamaliel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the, this ruling Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, which was in Jerusalem, which really is the one, are the ones who decisively put Jesus to death. And he was the strongest anti-Christian leader in Jerusalem. I mean, this was, this was the leader of anti-the way, anti-Christianity. And then we saw he's dramatically converted on the way to Damascus. We saw, and you can read that account in Acts chapter 9. And then after that, according to Galatians 1, what happens is Paul spends three years in the desert in Arabia. So he's converted, and he spends three years in the desert. Then he visits Peter, spends about 15 days with him in Jerusalem. Then he goes and pastors a church in Antioch of Syria. He did that with Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Menaean. And we see that account in Acts, Acts 13, 1. And then in Acts 13, 9, we see him first called Paul. And from there, in Antioch, we see the Holy Spirit send him and Barnabas on the greatest missionary enterprise that the world has ever seen. So, so this is his life. He, he's become a unique apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what God said of him in Acts 9, that he's a chosen instrument to carry out his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I mean, that's incredible. Born Jew and Roman citizen and will bring the gospel to both the Jew and the Gentile. Dramatically converted. One of the unique apostles. Romans eleven thirteen tells us this about him. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as then I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He was a missionary to the Gentiles, but he was hoping that his Jew, the, the Jews would, would hear of the gospel and, and the work of the gospel and also be saved. And so this is, this is the great Paul. But he says next here in, in, in verse one that he's what? An apostle. An apostle. This is Paul the, not just the man. This is Paul the apostle. What, what made him great is that he was chosen by God himself. 
This was an apostle. At times, the word apostle, as you look at it in verse one, it's used in a general sense sometimes in scripture. In a general sense, meaning a sent one or a messenger, right? And really, we see that used when it's a sent one of the church, an apostle of the church. You can find that phrase, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. And we see the term used in that way, in this general sense of a sent one, we see that for Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We see that for Barnabas in Acts 14. We see that for Silas and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians. We see Epaphroditus. We even see in Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is called an apostle. He's a sent one, right? But listen, Paul is not using this word here in a general sense. He's using it in a technical sense. He's using it as a title, as one who is a technical apostle. This is clear from how he uses it over and over and over again in Scripture. He was chosen to the office of apostle. Imagine this man who who killed Christians, the most undeserving of all men on the planet, chosen by God to represent him in the official office of apostle as a missionary to the Jews and the Gentiles. What an incredible picture this is already. Uh, Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that he was one of untimely birth, right? Meaning this, he was chose last, he was chose separately, he was chose uniquely from the others. He's part of the 12 that we see in Luke 6 and Mark 3 and the addition of Matthias in Acts chapter 1. He's just as qualified as all these men who were the chosen apostles of Christ, and yet he was uniquely chosen and uniquely sent. But listen, according to 1 Corinthians 9, he's no less of a real apostle because he has all the qualifications. What are those qualifications? This is the man who's writing. You have to understand, every time you read this book in this series, you are hearing from this man. What are the qualifications to be an apostle? Well, Galatians 1, you can write these down. 15 through 17 says that you have to be directly chosen by Jesus. Galatians 1, 15 through 17. Acts 1, says you have to be the witness of the resurrected Jesus. Acts 1, And then 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says you have to have the accompanying gifts and signs of an apostle. Acts 12, or, or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And so listen, this is the apostle. This is the unique one chosen by God to represent Christ. And what did the apostles do? Well, the apostles had purposes to lay a foundation for the church, Ephesians 2.20, to receive, to write, to declare the word, Ephesians 3.20, to to preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.17. And they had to confirm the word through their signs and the wonders and the miracles, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. They were to build church leaders, Acts 14, 23. And here's the key, is that this office was not perpetuated and it was not replaced. Once these apostles were gone, once the New Testament was completed, once the last apostle, the apostle John, died, this office ceased to exist. Now, Paul is telling us here, telling this church here, and they already know it, but he's reminding them. They know who he is. He was their pastor. They know he's an apostle, but he's writing this, not for boasting purposes, 
but for authoritative purposes. And he's not lording it over them. He's saying, in a sense, I'm representing Christ. What I say is true. You can trust me. What I say God says, and what I say is good for your soul, is good for you to hear and to listen. Paul's not boasting. Think about what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. He said this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful in appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. He remembers who he was. This is not pride when he says apostle. He says this, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He recognizes his, the choice of God on his life and he recognizes how it's all been by grace. But he makes mention of his authority because he represents God. Therefore, listen, for this church and for you, as you listen to his words, you can have confidence. You got to recognize that these are God's words. You are to receive them as if God himself were telling you this is the mind of God coming to you, right? This is what God says. He writes truth in a way that would glorify God in a way that would be for God's people's good. And so this is the apostle. Who is Paul an apostle of? Well, it says next in verse one of Christ Jesus. Of Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus, who is the Messiah. Christ, his title. Jesus, his earthly name. Christ, who is the Messiah. Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus, who is the king, who is the servant of God, who is for God's people, the anointed one, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, who is the savior, Jesus, the one whose name is Jesus, who came to earth, who is God's Christ, his sent one to both Jew and Gentile. He, he, this is Jesus, in other words, he's the apostle of Jesus, the eternal one, the second member of the Trinity, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for repentant sinners, was raised from the dead, proving to be God and proving that his payment on the cross was sufficient to pay for sin and ascended or he resurrected. He ascended into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the father and is Lord of all. That's who he represents. This is the one who will return to gather his elect, return to punish the wicked this is the one who returned to set up the eternal state. This is the one who will return for the new heavens and the new earth. This is the one who will return to be with his redeemed forever. Paul is a sent one, a representative of Jesus, who is God's Christ. I mean, what, a, what an amazing reality that he represents the Savior. And as if that wasn't enough, you know what Paul says? This was by the will of God. This wasn't Paul's choice. This wasn't Paul's choice. The authority of Paul's ministry is not only from Christ, but it's from the Father. Paul says in other places in Scripture, he was chosen before his birth. He was called by God, who saved him, commissioned him. Now he represents God. And this is who Paul is. This is who the writer is. This is who he represents. This is who backs him up. 
God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are words of truth that we're reading. These are words of truth. This is the pastor they know. This is the words that they can trust. These are words that are indicative of what God says, instructive of what God wants for them. And these are the words from the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Who are the people that are receiving this? Well, we see secondly the audience here. The audience. Who's the audience? Well, in 1B it says, starts with this, it's to the saints. Not the New Orleans ones. This isn't the people in, uh, in heaven who have achieved some form of, of, of religious piety. I'll explain to you what this means. The Apostle Paul is writing to the saints. The word literally means the ones who have been made holy. The holy ones. That's who he's writing to. The holy ones. Uh, they've been made, have been made holy by something outside of themselves. Those are the saints. And and we know who made them holy. It's God. We see that, and we're going to see that in this book. The holiness is from God's perspective. God had saved them. It makes them holy, set them apart, separate, perfect. The word holy is this idea of being separate, set apart, Set apart from the world, set apart from sin, set apart to God. These are the ones who have been set apart by God. Not on their own doing, but the doing of God. These are the holy ones. The holy ones. And the scripture talks about holiness in a few ways. And I want you to understand that because it's important as to what this means right here. What does this mean? Well, in in general, the the scripture talks about holiness really in three, three ways. Uh, let's call them positional, practical, and permanent. Positional holiness, and you guys know this, is what occurs in a moment. At the point of salvation, when God justifies the sinner through the gospel, you're given right standing with God, and you're set apart from the world from sin as you're set apart to God. That's positional holiness that happens at the moment of salvation. Uh, But then you got practical or progressive holiness. What do we usually call this? Sanctification. And it occurs progressively. This happens as the Christian repents, continually grows in Christ's likeness. This is the goal of the Christian life. It's progressive sanctification. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you got permanent holiness. Let's just call it that for, for clarity's sake. It's the holiness that the believer will experience at the moment of their death, at their glorification. When they die, go to heaven, they're finally free for sin, from sin, and they're perfect forever. That's permanent. So as believers, we've been made holy, we're being made holy, and we will be made what? Holy. And so here, what is Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to positional holiness. These recipients, in other words, are those who have been saved. That's what he's saying here. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to saved people. To the ones who have been saved. The recipients are saved. This is every Christian is a saint, in essence. Okay, this is... Uh, contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches, and I know I grew up under that teaching, right? A saint isn't reserved for those who maybe accomplish a certain degree of religious piety in their life. And then they have a special place, and we talk to them and pray to them and ask them for things. A saint, biblically, is every believer. You're a saint if you're in Christ. 
and you will always be one. Every Christian is a saint because every Christian has been made holy, set apart, given this imputed righteousness of Christ. And so Romans 3 says that it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's a good summary, Romans 3.22. That's a saint. Paul says the same thing in a different way, though, and here's how we know he's talking about positional holiness, because if we go down just a little bit, we'll come back to the word Ephesus, but we go down just a little bit and we see this word faithful. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are what? Faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says the same things here. Here's, here's what he's saying. This is the word pistos. And the word pistos can be translated as faithful as it is here, but it also can mean believing or believers. And so it can be translated faithful or believing or believers, right? And that's why if you see the elder qualifications in, in Titus 1, we have this question of when it says that the, uh, the elders' children must be believers or is it faithful, right? And I think in that case, it's faithful as children when under the authority of the father because there's no way one can guarantee the salvation of a child, right? I think it's faithful in, in, in Titus, but I think here it's believers. It, it's believers. So here, in other words, what Paul is saying is to the saints, the believers in Christ, this is what he's saying here. He's saying that these are the, this writing is to the believers who are in Christ Jesus. So listen now, if you are a believer in Christ, this word is for you. You don't have to doubt whether or not you need this. You do, because you're in Christ. You're his. You do need this. This is for believers who are in Christ. You can't say, well, I know the truth now. I don't, I don't really need all these words here. I'll kind of pick and choose or I'll figure it out along the way. No, 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 no. These are the words to believers. So if you're a believer in Christ, this is for you. These believers are in Christ Jesus. That's positional. Listen now, this is positional. It, they're meaning this, in other words, they're not an Adam. They're not an Artemis, who is the lowercase g God in Ephesus. They are in who? Christ. These are, these are holy ones, set apart ones. They're believers and they're positionally in Christ. Every person, when they come to believe, you're baptized into Christ. You're placed into Christ, meaning you live and you move and you have your being in Christ. You were saved, you are sanctified, you are sustained, and you will see you're, you're moving towards Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is your life. These are the believers who have been put positionally in Christ. That's what it means here. So Ephesians 6.24, I want you to turn to the end of the book. Look at this. He's saying this in a different way here. Who are these? These are the believers. Look at verse 24. Grace be with all of you who what? Love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's who this is to. Believers. Now listen, I know I'm coming at you supersonic speed here, but listen, we, we got a lot of stuff that we gotta get through to set this foundation. I told you it's gonna be information heavy, but track with me here. And so I think you could use the word faithful. I think you could also use the word faithful here, okay? Because listen, in this letter, Paul doesn't really address any specific issues that this church has. 
He doesn't really address any specific people who are causing trouble. So you can assume at this point that this church really is faithful. They're believers and they're faithful. These are faithful believers. Uh, We know that in Revelation chapter two, there's a letter written to that church in Ephesus, this church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, and to the other churches in Asia Minor, which probably came out of this church, by the way, in Ephesus. This is the main church in Ephesus, and all these other churches have come out of this church in Asia Minor. Those are the churches that are addressed in Revelation chapter two. But John wrote to this church 30 years later from this point in Revelation chapter two. And you know what he says about them? He says that, uh, and by the way, all those churches in Revelation 2 are real churches. He, he says, though, that the church in Ephesus, he commends them for these things, for toiling, meaning hard work, service in the Lord. He commends them for endurance and suffering. He commends them for holiness. He, he commends them for defense against false teachers. He commends them for their perseverance. He commends them for their zeal. And then they had what? Lost their what? First love. And he says you have to repent because you lost the love for God and you've lost love for each other. That's what they need to repent of. And this makes sense because, listen, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and Paul's in Ephesus, I mean, Timothy's in Ephesus at the time when Paul writes to him, you know what he says for, uh, to, to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus? He says, listen, you have to understand the aim of my charge to you, Timothy, while you're in Ephesus is love from a pure heart. That makes sense. He, he's got to get Timothy to get this church to love. But the book really, Ephesians, if you look at it in a way, the book really does begin with love and ends with love. And so that's a focus here. Paul uses actually 19 times out of 106 times the word love that he uses in all of his writings. 19 of them are found in this book. But listen, there's no explicit issue here. This are, just in that sense, they are faithful. They are faithful. So who are they? Well, these are the believers, the saints, the ones who are in Christ, the faithful. In where? Where is their location? Ephesus. Let me just list this out for you, help you understand this before we move to the aim or the application at the end. They're in Ephesus. Now, this letter was probably a general letter. You have to understand, uh, this is not probably going to only a single church. This, this is going to, uh, to one church, and then it's to be circulated among a number of churches in Asia Minor. And we know that, once again, this is why I said there's no specific issue here. There's no specific people mentioned here, which is common in Paul's letters. Because this is probably general to be circulated. First to Ephesus, then circulated around. But what about Ephesus? Listen, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. This is a significant place. Ephesus is a significant place. It's modern-day Turkey, if you're wondering. Where is that now, right? modern-day Turkey. Uh, But this is a significant place. Why? Because it's at the mouth of what's called the Castor River. It's the east of the Aegean. And so it's an important political, educational, commercial city. Now, you, if you know how Acts has kind of progressed along, here's a little bit about this church. The church was established by Priscilla and Aquila. Remember this? In Acts 18.26, Paul left them there on his second missionary journey. And so what happens here at this time, Paul leaves them on, on his journey in Acts 18, 18 through 22. Paul spends just a short time there, but he refused to stay. He leaves them there. 
And then Paul, after they've established this church, comes back on his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 19, and spends three years there, and then firmly establishes this church. You can see that in Acts chapter 20. And so a short time after that, he leaves after three years, and then even then calls the Ephesian elders to come to him in Miletus and to encourage them and charge them. I mean, he's had a great impact on this church. He left some of his missionaries there. He spends three years there. He, he, he invests in the elders there. But when Paul left after even three years, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, that he left who there? Timothy. So they had Paul, they had Priscilla, Aquila, then they had Paul, and then they had Timothy. Those are some pretty good leaders, huh? And Timothy stays there for a year and a half, and his main purpose of staying was to refute false teachers, and we're told about them by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander. So they, they, these people, Alexander and Hymenaeus, they had been elders in this church. They had been elders there, and they were desiring to be teachers. But Paul says in 1 Timothy, you can read all about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that because of these false teachers, he says that the church was threatened by myths, endless genealogies, unscriptural ideas, forbidding marriage, abstaining from certain foods. They didn't understand the scripture. And these men, they propounded their godly uh, um, interpretation, ungodly interpretations of scripture. But really, they didn't have any idea what the scriptures meant. And so they really harmed the church. Now, here's what happens to this church. Later on, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul's imprisoned. You know that story at the end of the book of Acts. This is Paul's third imprisonment. By the way, Acts tells us uh, of really three imprisonments from Paul. We know from the scripture there's other times that he was, he was imprisoned. He was released at the end of that third one at the end of the book of Acts, and he's imprisoned again in Rome for the fourth time. That's when he writes 2 Timothy. But in this third one, we're told that this grand story, really Acts 21 through 28, is this whole process of Paul going to Rome to be imprisoned. You guys know this story, right? Because he goes from the Sanhedrin to Felix to Festus to Agrippa to, to Caesar in Rome, right? That's all the end of the book of Acts. And in that final imprisonment, in about 60 to 62 AD, is when he writes this letter. He writes this letter back to the church that he had pastored. Back to the church that he had pastored. How do we know he's in prison? Well, look, just look at a couple instances here. Ephesians 3, 1. Look at this. For this reason, I, Paul, what? A prisoner. And then look at chapter four, verse one. I, therefore, a what? Prisoner. Look at chapter six, verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything in God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, that's 520, 6.20. For which I am an ambassador in what? Chains. So he states this. Explicitly, Now, here's what Paul did when he was in prison in Rome, in that third imprisonment, at the end of the book of Acts. He not only wrote this book, but he also wrote Colossians and Philemon, and he sent both of these, all of these letters with Tychicus or Tychicus. He, he sent these letters with him and probably Onesimus because Onesimus was going back to Philemon and Colossae. You had to pass through Ephesians, uh, Ephesus to get there. So you got probably Onesimus and Tychicus going uh, on this journey from Paul who's in Rome, in prison. That's why this is a prison epistle. That's what it's called. And so 2 Timothy 4.12 says it explicitly, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. But look at the end of this 
of this book. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Who does he send this with? So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Who? Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He sends this letter from prison with him to this church, this prison epistle. Now, let me tell you this. This is considered by many the crown of all of Paul's writings. It's what's called the quint essence of Paulinism. This is the church. This is the apostle. This is the one who is writing. This is the one who he's writing to. These are believers whom he's pastored. They've had missionaries like Priscilla and Aquila. They've had pastors like Timothy. They have elders who have had direct relationship with Paul. They've been edified by people like Tychicus. They've faced significant false teachers. They have no glaring issues. They need to hold on to love. They're faithful in so many ways. They're a little unseasoned and green. They're new. And so Paul's got to write to him, and that's where we get to the aim and close this out. Verse two, he says this. Go back to chapter one, verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This is a, a really a standard customary greeting, but it's changed, and that's how Paul does this. You see, he substitutes this word, this word uh, greetings, which is Karen, for this word grace, which is charis. He takes the standard greeting and, and he morphs it. He's not just saying greetings. He's saying grace to you. Grace to you. And then he adds this traditional Hebrew greeting, which brings out this word peace, irony. Or you could say the equivalent in Hebrew is what? Shalom. And so here's this Greek Hebrew man putting together this customary Greek heading, but he's a Christian and he's morphing it and then adding this Hebrew greeting to it, who he also has a background in, what he also has a background in. So this is Paul's greeting. He's, he's saying grace to you. It's, this is what, what Paul wants for them. This is what Paul wants for them. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of what they already have. It's who they are. What does it mean? Grace to you. God's undeserved kindness in Christ. That's what I want for you. That's what you have. That's what I want you to have more of. That's what I want you to understand more fully. That's what I want to be the characteristic of your life. Grace to you. That's what Paul's saying here. And then, and then there's a result. What's the result of God's unmerited kindness in your life? Peace. And peace. <laughs> this is practical. This is the peace of God. This is the peace of God because of the peace with God. This is the shalom. And, and, and in Hebrew, shalom is not just a feeling of peace. It's more than just a feeling. It's spiritual prosperity. It's completeness. He wants them to be complete in Christ because of who they have been made in Christ. That's what he wants for this church. He wants them to be complete. So he says grace and peace. This is what he wants them to understand, experience more fully. And who does it come from? It comes from, look at the end of verse two, God, the, God our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In simple terms, which you're gonna see all throughout chapters, 
one through three, really. This is the source. God the Father is the one who gives this unmerited kindness. God the Father is the one who gives this incredible peace and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I love how he says it here because in the Greek, the way that he says this promotes equality with God the Father and Christ. They are both equal. So, so this is really a statement of the divinity of Christ and the way that he states this. And so this is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he not only puts who they are, he puts their title and their position. God is who in the Trinity? The Father. And Jesus is the Lord, which really this is the Greek equivalent of, of the Old Testament Yahweh. This is what they substituted Yahweh for. In other words, he is calling Jesus God here. But he not only gives his title, he gives his earthly name, Jesus. And he not only gives that, but he gives what he has done, Christ. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. This is the source of all of this unmerited kindness. This is the source of all of this peace with God and from God. It's who? It's God the Father. And it's Yahweh who came to earth and who has died for sinners. This is where all of this comes from. And now the theme of all of this is that idea that you, that these believers, that you have been blessed in Christ. This is what you have received in Christ. God's unmerited kindness and the peace that comes with living in light of that, that new creation. And really, if you were to pick a theme verse of this book, it'd be chapter two, verse 13. Just look at it with me. It says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's it. Do you know how you have been blessed in Christ? I mean, do you understand? Do you contemplate? Do you think about all that God has done? Think about what God has done for you in Christ. Think what he has done. Think what you have become. Think who you have become. Think now about this new life. Think about what you will be given, what you have been given, and what you will become. That's the idea here. What he has done for you. Do you think about who you are now to be in light of what he has done? What you get to be, what you get to do, how you get to live. You live in this new perspective, this new reality. Have you thought about how he has chosen you, how he has saved you, how you get to live? This is a church here in this book that is made up of Gentile believers. In other words, those who were far off and excluded from God's promises. That's you. Everyone in this room is a Gentile believer if you're in Christ. This is God's gracious gift of salvation to those who do not deserve it. And what has happened to them? They have become Christ's body. You have become Christ's body. In other words, like Christ when he is on earth. You make manifest who Christ is. Christ is the head. The Holy Spirit has become your lifeblood. You, you've been given gifts sovereignly. You're blessed. And listen, this is the theme undoubtedly. Let me tell you, this book has, in, in all of its pictures here, 
And, and the words used over and over, riches, grace, glory, what has been shown, what has been given. I mean, this is what you have to realize, that you have been so blessed in Christ, and it's all been an act of his grace. That's what puts this thing into perspective. God has done this for you. Think about this. This is by him. I mean, all you have to do, and don't do it now, but later on, just go through chapter one and, and look at the God focus and what he has done. It's in him. It's because of him. It's by him. It's through him. It's his grace. Verse, one, uh, verse two of chapter one. His peace, one, two. His will, one, five. His pleasure and purpose, one, nine. His glory, one, twelve. His calling and inheritance, one, eighteen. His power and strength, one, nineteen. His love, 2.4. His workmanship that you have become, 2.10. His spirit that he has given you, 3.16. His offering and sacrifice, 5.2. His armor, 11 through 13 of chapter 6. And he has poured it all out on you. He's poured it all out on you. Now listen, I mean, riches, the, the word riches is used five times in this book. The word grace, 12 times. The word glory, six times. The word fullness or filled, six times. Meaning you have access to all that he has and is. Riches, inheritance. I mean, it's been said by some that they've called this book the, the believer's bank. By others, the Christian checkbook. This has been called the treasure house of the Bible. This is showing you God's character that you have experienced to you. Now listen, God is accessible. He's glorious. He's kind. He's loving. He's merciful. He's powerful. He's a promise keeper. He's reconciling. He's wise. I mean, all these things have come to you. You've been given what is a, a common theme in this book. The mystery has been unveiled to you, right? Which mystery means here, truth unrevealed before has now been revealed to you. What's that truth? Well, really Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 summarizes it. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own. It's not by your works that no one may boast. That's the mystery that was not revealed. Now, guess what has been revealed to you? That truth, that reality, that mystery of salvation. And he's made you one humanity, one citizen. This isn't just by ourselves. We've been a building. We're a temple. All this unity is in this book, too. This is a household, a fullness, a bride, a body. You experience this with others. And so listen. As we close this, I want you to understand the key phrase in this book is in Christ. It's this great richness of blessing that you have been given in salvation. And then it's this second part of this in Christ. All of this happens in Christ, in him or in Christ in some way is used 22 times in this book. It's all in salvation. It's all in this new position. That's the idea here. Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians at the same time. Colossians has been called the Christ of the church because the focus is on Christ the person. And Ephesians has been called the church of Christ. The Christ of the church and then Ephesians, the church of Christ. Who you are, what you have been given and what has been done for you in Christ. And so listen, what we'll see is in the first three chapters are theological. There's New Testament doctrine of salvation. In other words, in the first three chapters, praise to the triune God for the spiritual blessing of salvation that we who are in Christ enjoy. That's the idea.
I mean, have you understood what he has done in his predestining, choosing, saving work? And then there's a therefore at the beginning of chapter four. And it moves just like Paul does to the practical. Now, listen, I want you to understand this. Then it moves to this great privilege that you are to live in in light of this salvation, this new reality that you've been given. Isn't that an amazing thing that you get to live in a new way? That's what Paul's saying. That's the idea. And, and now we have to be careful because, listen, I mean, the nature of preaching is you exposit this verse by verse, and we kind of break this up because we got to understand these concepts. They're so packed full. I mean, I've just spent almost an hour going through two verses, right? But here's the deal. This church would read this in one sitting. So when they get to chapters four through six, they're remembering that all of this instruction is in light of what they've become in Christ. And we have a tendency to separate that as we exposit it little by little. So we got to keep coming back to the idea. Do you know what you have? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you've been given? Now, do you know how you get to live? We got to keep connecting it. And so here's what's going to happen. This admonishment in the last three chapters. I mean, it's for this church who should be thankful, who should walk in a manner worthy, who should be desperate to be fellowshipping with this God. But even as we get to the end of the book, despite all this blessing, and really because all of this blessing, Satan's going to tempt you. So you've got to put on his whole armor that he's already blessed you with. Right? And so as we close this, how maybe does this even apply to you specifically? Listen, this should strengthen you. This should encourage you. This must help you to trust and live in light of what you have been given and who you have been made. Do you remember that? Do you enjoy that? Are you thankful for that? Do you know who you have become? Do you know what you've been given in Christ to the praise of his glory? Oftentimes we don't know, we don't appreciate, we don't utilize There is no reason in light of these realities here that you should be spiritually deprived, undernourished, or impoverished. You have everything that you need in Christ. You've been given everything to overcome sin and every defect. Not perfection, but you should be spiritually happy and healthy in light of what Christ has done, in light of who you are. This book should produce for you confidence, contentment, worth, Joy, strength, humility, holiness, vigilance. You know, this past week I was listening to something that some of our other guys listened to as well. Some statistics about the youth and the status of of just how social media has just killed the, the, the vitality of the youth and even Christians. And I was thinking about this and thinking about why. And it's, I mean, it's easy to point out, isn't it? Social media, what it does in our age is produces this great worthlessness because of the comparison that's there. All you begin to think of is I'm less than, I don't compare to, I do not have, etc. Because everyone's putting their best face forward for a picture. Listen, you cannot fall into that lie. Do you know who you really are in Christ? Do you know really what you have been given? 
And why does that pale in comparison to your status before the world? I mean, you're more blessed than the majority of the planet because of what Christ has done for you. And you need to begin to see it that way. You need to begin to live in light of that. You need to begin to understand that. You, you should never feel that way in light of the blessings you have received in Christ. Now we just live to love him and live for his purposes. We don't need any more. And so this really is this book about being blessed in Christ. You've received the riches through God, through his work in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray by your mercy and by your grace that you would allow this book to have its great effect in us. So often, God, we treat the riches and the blessings of Christ that we have been given as, that, as, as if they're subpar. I mean, we're discouraged because we don't have some trinket or some praise from man. We forget that we were far off and you have done this great work because of your son. Lord, we forget that now we get to live in this privileged new reality in all these practical ways in the church you're gonna show us. As fathers, as mothers, as children, you tell us, as employers and employees. I mean, there's this new reality for those who have been given this great blessing and we get to live like it. I pray, Lord, that you would allow this to reshape our minds, refocus it onto the truth. Don't let us be worldly. Don't let us think like the world regarding our worth. Let us think regarding the gospel of Christ and how that determines who we are and how we live. God, you've done all this by your own choice, by your own power, by your own wisdom and by your own might. We are just recipients of this great grace. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for helping us, indwelling us, empowering us. And Lord, help us to look into and live for you. In Christ's name, amen.